work with smart people, get a few people on your board of advisors or board of directors that know what the hell they're doing in this industry, and they'll help you get around it. Now, you may not have as much of your business after you get through a big, you know, kick in the stomach. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm lucky enough today to be speaking with Scott Jensen, who is the CEO and co-founder of one of my actual personal favorite brands, Rhythm Superfood. So welcome to the podcast, Scott. I'm really happy to have you. Oh, Christy, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. Can't wait to dive into it. Thank you. Me too. So I could talk about your brand for a long time, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let you do it. So tell me a little bit about Rhythm Superfoods and what brought you to this particular company at this moment in time. You know, we've been running the company for a little over 10 years. And when we first started the company, the sole product it had really was kale chips. And at the time, there was a couple of guys at a local juice and smoothie company called Daily Juice that were making these kale chips in the back of the kitchen. They started selling them at a couple of the local natural food stores in Austin and couldn't keep them on the shelf as often happens with entrepreneurial startups. And they wanted to figure out how to you know, get into more stores. And it was coming at a really good transition time for me as I was getting ready to move on from Stubbs Barbecue Sauce Company. And I got excited about something Super healthy, super nutritious, super crunchy, kind of the same qualities of, say, a bag of potato chips, but maybe with a little more nutrition in it. So that's kind of what our our motto is about nutrient density. So I got excited and decided to see what we could do about scaling, you know, a vegetable and fruit snack company that had nutrition at the core of its reason for being. So that's exciting and awesome. And I know there are a lot of things about Rhythm Superfoods that we need to talk about because I'm sure it was very different than your experience with Stubbs. But first, I want you to just touch on that because you came to this brand, I think, from a really unique path. Like You weren't necessarily in health and wellness food before this. So could you just talk about that transition a little bit? And Yeah. I mean, with all like interesting transparency, we were making Stubbs barbecue sauce at the time. And a couple of the ingredients that we were using at the time at Stubbs had ingredients that weren't allowed at Whole Foods, yet Whole Foods was located in Austin as a headquarters, right where we were headquartered with. And it was early on in the natural foods game. So it was a head scratcher. And, and having spent you know, 15, 20 years heads down selling barbecue sauce, I didn't even realize this massive growth that was happening on the organic natural side of consumer products. And to figure out whether this was something we want to engage in at Stubbs, we went to our first Expo West show to just walk it. And we were blown away at, you know, brands that we'd never heard of because we had blinders on and immediately said, this is something that's super interesting. And how do we do this? And came to find out that the two ingredients that we were using that had some things in it that weren't allowed at Whole Foods. There were other alternatives from the same companies that was just a different you know, item number that you could order and didn't have sulfide or sodium benzo in it. So we made that transition. I got really excited about that trade show. And in the back of my head, it was 
this looks like the future and the tidal wave of what's going to move America away from kind of this, you know, eat stuff in the center of the store to eating things that are healthier for it. And so I had the bug to try to figure out how to get myself inside that path. And what we were doing to make barbecue sauce was really so simple. The ingredients were not you know, they were on a shelf in a warehouse and palletized and ready to be mixed and heated up to make your, you know, this delicious barbecue sauce, which it was. Fast forward to me thinking, oh, well, if we can make, you know, thousands of cases of that a day, it should be no problem making thousands of cases of snacks made from fresh vegetables and fruits. And that was, I think, one of the biggest eye openers for me is just very different supply chain much more complicated, much more difficult, fraught with all kinds of risks from weather to, you know, sun or no sun, rain or no rain, cold or no coat. We've had freezes that have destroyed kale plants, plants in the ground, not the facilities. We've had, you know, no rain for three or four weeks where it's not a good time to harvest. We've had rain for two weeks where it's not a good time to harvest. So I think that was the biggest lesson for me and what's different from what I was doing at the barbecue sauce company. It's so interesting because you talk about supply chain, which is obviously a huge issue right now for everyone because of COVID. But I feel like you guys must always have those challenges because you're really dealing. I mean, there are a lot of foods in the in Whole Foods and in other stores that are better for you, but yours is actually made from you're a better for you center of the store food that's made from really fresh vegetables. So you've got to deal with the same challenges that the produce industry does, but beyond that, because you're expected to get what you need and package it up and get it to people in mass. So talk about that a little bit, because that must be wild. I think you highlighted the core of it is that we are a produce company. Mm -hmm. We contract with was five, now six USDA organic certified growers in Mexico that make everything from our grow our watermelons to our mushrooms, to our kale, to our cauliflower, carrots, beets, and in order to have this produce available to us to turn into snacks over a couple day period of time, you have to have this growing so that you can harvest it almost every week. It's not done kind of the seasonal push when apples are ready in Michigan, you pick apples and store them away in, you know, 31 degree coolers to keep them fresh and crunchy for 10 months. For us, it's, you know, there's a 14 day shelf life of kale when it's picked to when it's drooping and sad and won't make a nice chip. So our farmers have to allot very specific graduations of their land where they may plant eight rows one week and eight rows the next week and eight rows the next week so that during the cycle of growth, we're able to harvest on almost a weekly basis. There are certain things we don't harvest, but every two or three weeks, and we'll do those in campaigns. But it is this, you know, communication with the farmer. When we're speaking to our buyers and category managers in the U.S., we're speaking to people that almost all of their other suppliers are using ingredients that are kind of off the shelf, if you will, or stored in a a refrigerated environment like a potato chip. Potatoes are harvested and then they're put in these cold environments. Corn is harvested and dried and you can take that corn and nixtamalize it later and make a tortilla chip. But literally it's, how's the weather next week? Should our farmers be picking? What should we plan on? You know, what area of our farmers' geography should they be picking from? So we're a produce company that begs our buyers and category managers to treat us slightly differently if we ever get to the point where we have out of stocks or 
You know, if we're working with someone brand new, they can't say, hey, I'd like this in eight weeks. We're like, well, the seedlings won't even be little seedlings for another five or six weeks if you tell me you're going to take our products today. We're on a four-month cycle of just being able to grow something and expand. Now, if someone said, hey, I've got 10 stores and can you get me some products, that's easier to handle. But if someone big says, I've got a thousand stores and I'm going to need this in seven weeks, it's something we just have a real hard time doing. That sounds like it's very, very challenging. And so how do you scale with that as the thing that you have to worry about aside from all the other things that everyone else worries about? Yeah, well, the first thing is, you know, safety and quality. And, you know, we're pretty tight with how we visit our farmers, their land. We're visiting with them physically to make sure we see what's going on, see what the surrounding land is like. So safety is a big deal. We invest a lot of time and energy and people to that. But it's having a supply chain management team in Mexico. Our two plants are in Mexico and Guadalajara. And so we have leadership down there that has a team of people that physically go and visit and kick the dirt with the farmers and keep track of what's going on and make sure that they know in advance when we're going to continue to add a new customer that's coming on board in July. They're going to have to plant some seeds in April. So it's just a constant communication. I think that's at a higher level than what we had to really do when we were making barbecue sauce. There's a couple of things that you would do. The tomato crop each season in California was important. And you know, you're giving guidance of how many tons of tomato paste you're going to need or crushed tomatoes or diced tomatoes. But once those things are processed, they're kind of in the warehouse mm-hmm. waiting for you to use it. Yeah. And it's very different than being you know, we're a produce department is really what we are. And the ballet of what our planning people in Mexico do is quite extraordinary. So what's the process actually like? Like, how does it go from a kale to a kale chip or a carrot to a carrot chip? Yeah. So I'll talk about kale because, you know, it's the girl that brought us to the dance. We have two farmers that grow the kale for us and they're no more than like 75 miles away from the plant, pretty close. When we were making our products in the US for half of the year, we couldn't get a reliable source of kale in the U.S. So it was always coming from south of the border. The weather's warmer year-round down there. So you have row crops growing year-round. So that kale will be picked one day. There's a farmer in San Miguel de Allende, just outside of it, that grows the majority of our kale. They'll have it in their you know, FDA-inspected and USDA-approved plant doing the FDA requirements for triple stage washing and agitation. So, you know, hand pulling the stem of the kale away from the leaf and going through that triple washing, going through a spin cycle to get all the moisture out of it, then bagged in three pound bags and shipped to us. Now we'll get it and we'll process it within two, three days at the most. Uh, It's sitting in our cooler storage. Uh, It's got a 14 day shelf life at that point, but we're processing it within the first three or four days that we get it. So it's like two days before we start making it from when it was picked. And we'll take that kale, measure it and mix it with these quote unquote salad dressings or the wet flavors that we use. They're sunflower based recipes with all kinds of seasoning that establish the actual flavor that you're going to get, whether it's original or nacho or zesty Mm -hmm. nacho. So they mix it with a ribbon blender. And then there are people that have scales in front of them and trays and they take, say, five pounds of it and put it onto the tray, separating it, stack 34 trays on top of a rack and wheel it into a dehydrator that's as big as an 18-wheeler. 
and then they turn on the dehydrator and we've got automation that allows warm, dry air to come in. It circulates through all the trays. And then when the moisture inside that compartment gets to a certain level, the automated machinery there evacuates that moist air, brings more dry air in. And that cycle will go all night, you know, 10 or 12 hours of slow, low temperature dehydration. You could bake this product, but the baking of it just changes the texture and the crunch and oftentimes leaves a little bit of residual moisture inside that softens the chip later. So this low and slow for kale is really the only way to do it. Wow. That's amazing. And is that how you do all of them? Is everything similar? Most of the products follow the same pattern. There's a couple of kind of techniques for things like carrots or beets, if you will, that a certain amount of quick blanching helps Mm -hmm. soften the product. And so that's getting kind of peeled and sliced and quick blanched, like very quick, just to help soften it up. If you don't do that, you've got something extremely hard and it's difficult to bite into. There's no intellectual property on recipes. You can't patent a recipe. So a few of our techniques we look at as intellectual property and secrets. But for the most part, those type of products are being made in a way that people have been preserving and dehydrating food for centuries. It's warm air, you know, taking out the moisture and then making sure that there's not an environment inside the bag where anything yep. like mold or yeast can grow. So yep. keeping crunchy, keeping the environment dry, and then nothing can grow. And that's the safety for the consumer. That's great. I think it's fantastic. Where'd the name come from? Of the company? Yeah. You know, this town, Austin, is, you know, psychotic with its love of music. We have mm-hmm. some incredible things here like South by Southwest which has a portion of it that's a music festival. We have a ton of live music here. And the Austin City Limits ACL Festival in the fall, all of the people that started it, including myself, were somewhat involved in the music industry. Oh, cool. Um, Stubbs Barbecue, which was my previous life, has an incredible live music venue down here in Austin with a 2,500-person amphitheater. Keith War, who also helped start the company as a music producer and musician himself, and a couple of the other folks that helped start it were just deeply in love with music. So we had a couple bottles of wine one night, wrote down all the relevant names that it should be, and just kept crossing off the ones that we didn't like. And in the end, rhythm felt really good to like bring some universality. It's like the rhythm of life, the rhythm of your body, the rhythm of music. Didn't really realize that like more than half of the people in the country don't know how to spell rhythm, including me half the time. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. It's hard to get, you know, emails written when it's, you don't know if the H and the Y are inverted. And so think about that the next time you start a company is, can people type the name, even though it may seem clever? (laughs) You know that that's so funny because the irresistible factor and are you irresistible.com and all the things that I did around that word, no one can spell it. No one. And you had like a three letter name, but those are all gone, right? They're all, and they don't have the same meaning. And so I thought, well, it doesn't matter if it's hard to spell because the meaning is so whatever, but it's hard to spell and no one ever gets it right. So I totally get that. It's funny. Talk about the size of the brand, you know, when you started versus now versus where you want to be in a couple of years from now. Yeah, I mean, I think the mission that we've we've accomplished so far is bringing 
nutrient-dense snacks to America in kind of in a format that hopefully helps people make a transition. We're not the type of company that screams loudly and says, you should quit eating this tortilla chip because it's this or that potato chip because it's that. We want to offer something that's crunchy and delicious. And it's harder to do that in the format that we're doing it. So the thought originally was, hey, this kale chips are delicious. Let's see how far it goes. And it became big, not because of us, but kale became a hero. And when we first started, you know, we had like 10 or 11 of these small harvest saver dehydrators that were very efficient. And we were running them seven days a week, 24 hours a day until such time that we had to scale up much bigger. So at that time, we were literally like, you know, a nine iron shot behind my office right here in a small little commercial kitchen. And that was kind of the proof of concept phase of any new company. Like before you start getting millions of dollars of investment into your company, like do people really like it? So you try to spend as little as possible and crank out mm-hmm. product and iterate a few times and make sure that there's a marketplace for it. And the marketplace existed and still exists. We're still growing the kale chip business. And at that time, you know, we were in the half a million dollars to a million dollars in sales zone in the first two years. And, you know, without giving away the private stuff that I'm not supposed to talk about, Mm -hmm. we'll finish somewhere in the 40 to $60 million range this year in revenue, maybe even higher than that, depending on how a few things come together in the second half of the year. But the idea for us in the future is to to become as big as we can get with the team we have and a few additions and get over 100 million, maybe 200 million. Every time we're growing, more people are eating healthier stuff. So we get excited about that mission. There will come a time where someone else has to take it to the next level and maybe bring it to the rest of the world with a more clearly defined distribution platform than we may be able to take once we get over $100 million or 150 million. But I think it's there for us to go after that level of business. And that's not easy. I mean, there is no orchestra of people and we're above the border and we're below the border. We've got a massive team, great team in Mexico, in Guadalajara with three facilities, two manufacturing plants and one warehouse down there, headquarters up here in Austin. And I've got salespeople scattered around the country. This is a lot of work. So when I think about like, doubling and tripling where we're at right now in the next few years. It's a tall order. You know, that's like an Elon Musk prediction. Like, I think it can happen. And, you know, it may or may not, but I think it can happen. I think so too. I mean, and I'm excited for you and for everyone, because I love that you're looking at your sales and your revenue as an indicator of how much healthier Americans are eating, but it is, I think it's really important. And it's amazing that there's an option because it's been there have been a lot of products that are supposed to be better for you, right? That get introduced to snackers and people like to snack. And so you are desperately trying to find something that doesn't do the terrible things to you that potato chips and things that are overly processed do. But I mean, I don't, I, there are a handful of brands and you're one of the leaders. There are not that many options to snack on that are actually truly healthy and better for you. So I think that knowing that you're doing that and your growth is really a, barometer for what's happening in the country, that must feel really good. It does. You know, it's interesting about healthy and we challenge ourselves about that word itself because I think when we were selling the kale chips, for instance, you could be talking to someone that has lost an enormous amount of weight on a keto diet. Mm -hmm. 
to that person, healthy is get rid of all carbs, no matter what. Yep. And I've just reduced my possibility of morbidly obese and all those problems that come with it. And to that person, healthy is that. Organic is not healthy to that person. It's more about the carbs and like someone else may have a different definition of what's healthy and it's healthy to our environment. We need to do regenerative agriculture and it doesn't matter if it's this, but it's got to be that. I know that us saying that our organic snacks and like fresh from the farm snacks are, that's our definition of it. And I feel like we're true to it and we try to stay right on that path, but the nature of what it means to everyone else is changing. And just hope there's enough people in a couple of years to still consider us healthy if the diets continue to change. Well, I mean, the diets will continue to change, I think, because that's just, I mean, that's an eternal quest, right? And everyone's always looking for the next best way to help people faster, whatever, right? All the things. And sometimes they're healthy and sometimes they're opposite of healthy, but they do the job. So I think there's, I mean, there's little doubt in my mind, at least, that what you're doing will ever not be considered healthy and better for you. So that's really cool. Yeah. And I mean, the more people that you can get exposed to it, I mean, we've been doing ourselves a real disservice in this country for a long time with the way that we snack and the way we process food. And what you're doing is opposite of that. So, I mean, I'm really excited for it. But aside from that, I'm curious to have you just talk a little bit about, I mean, it sounds awesome and you're really passionate, obviously, about it. But you've had to have faced so many challenges that founders face and entrepreneurs face. Is there anything that you could share that would be either something you tell someone like, if you're going to do this and you want to be a founder and you want to have a brand, just make sure X or don't do this. Yeah. And I guess my answer will be personal to me and my experience. You're going to get hit in the face and the stomach several times to success. And some of it's like, we've run out of money and I didn't start raising quick enough and things are crashing around me and I've got to figure out, like it comes at you hard. And I feel like I kind of jumped into this to lead it personally and singularly myself with the team that I then found. And I feel like uh, when I look around the room and look at my past history at Stubbs, like having one or two co-founders, as long as you all can stay committed to it, helps to like flatten out the huge amount that you have to wear on your shoulders as a solo entrepreneur. So, you know, that's one thing is I just feel like having another person or two around you from the beginning really helps to accelerate things and helps to ease the burden of what is going to be a pretty tough row. I think the other cliches of like, whenever you think you need a million, you need to raise two or three, they end up always being the case. For instance, Cauliflower right now, as far as our snacks are concerned, our number one selling item. It's probably going to, you know, triple by the end of this year. The run rate of what kale is, as I said earlier, kale is the one that brought us to the dance. But I see it often in this: like you think this particular product that you start with is going to be everything, and it's just mm-hmm. going to explode. And there's a few people that end up having that happen for themselves. But oftentimes, and you'll have one hero product, and that hero product might not come until three, five, seven years later. So your ability to keep moving and grooving and turning to the right and the left, and I don't want to say the word pivot like it's a complete pivot, but the one that you started with is not always the thing that brings you there. So you have to be willing to go through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship where, you know, this valley of despair when you don't have the product market fit that like a lot of high tech companies talk about, but it's the same in consumer products. Like 
you think it's wonderful, but not the rest of the world doesn't, or, you know, your pricing is not right, or the flavors aren't right. And suddenly you started with this particular energy bar and suddenly something completely different that you added a new ingredient takes off. So be prepared for that in how you approach your investors as well. What you think is going to bring the money back in there, you know, be able to pay your investors back, you know, two, three, four, five times, 10 times may not be the one. So be careful what you write. You want to have the conviction because that's what investors want to see there, but also be prepared to say that, yeah, this wasn't it, but here we've got this new idea and the data shows we should be doing this. So be aware of yourself that slight pivots here and there are probably going to be necessary as you go through your path. It's so interesting that you said that. I was just talking to this woman, the founder of Mush, it's an overnight oats brand. I don't know if you know the brand, but she was just telling me, as soon as you think you have your business figured out, it changes. Like three months, got it figured out, it changes. So you just have to be willing to change with it. And I'm sure for you, on top of what you just said is also the, you're really affected by climate and everything that's going on in the world. So you have to be even more ready to sort of adjust. And and also just like the unknown, we have all our eggs in the Mexico market basket, right? Like that's where the produce that we need to use is grown year round. And so to reduce, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and trucking all of our winter produce from Mexico to the U.S. takes three trucks of fresh to make one truck of finished goods. We moved down to Mexico specifically to be more efficient, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, reduce the cost of the transport of the fresh produce and all that that entailed. And suddenly we're more efficient. We're doing the things the right way and we're embracing Mexico and, and how great it is at growing produce. And, you know, in the last administration, there was a time where our president at the time doing a little saber rattling to try to reduce immigration across the border, illegal immigration across the border, and said he was going to, you know, tax or tariff 25% on everything coming across the border. Like that wasn't in my pro forma to my investors. Right. <laughs> that we were suddenly right. have a 25% cost of goods increase. So sometimes what you think you have control of, life will give you something that you never could have ever thought of. And luckily it was all worked out. I had always assumed all along, but you know, I had a dozen investors call me after the tax was being waved around. I was like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. We're going to have to open a plant up here if we can't make the stuff down there. And that's another risk of, you know, supply chain is mm-hmm. where's your supply chain from and what are the risks that something like we have right now going on around the world, you know, closes things up. 120 ships waiting in the Los Angeles Harbor and Long Beach to come in and Christmas wasn't the same this year Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of toys and different gifts sitting in boats. So that's something to think about too, is acts of God do happen. And sometimes you cannot be prepared for it. Yeah. That's so interesting. And you have to, right? You're not prepared, but you got to figure it out. You got to figure it out. It's another kick to the stomach that you get that you just, with your people and your board and you start talking about it. What are we going to do? You must have days where you're like, or maybe you don't, but I feel like most entrepreneurs and founders have days when they're like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Do you have those days? And if you do, what do you do to get yourself past them? I like hate to talk badly about anyone that ever gave up because I know how hard it can be, but I have a never give up attitude. I don't know where it came from or, you know, some people have it, some people don't. Like from the outside looking in, you could call it stupidity at certain times, (laughs) 11 years, like, oh my God, this guy, if he's going to continue to lead this company, he must be 
you know, he's lost a, a couple of brain cells because no one would do that. I'm like, no, I've taken people's money that I know and like, and I am not going to zero this thing out. Yeah. Go in and figure it out. And there are absolutely days where it may take me a half an hour longer to actually pull myself out of bed because I know what I'm about to face. But I always believe, and it's a danger I have in talking with younger entrepreneurs, I'm always the person that says, you just got to keep going. You're going to be able to pivot. You're going to be able to figure this out. Work with smart people. Get a few people on your board of advisors or board of directors that know what the hell they're doing in this industry, and they'll help you get around it. Now, you may not have as much of your business after you get through a big you know, kick in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Maybe you had to raise a little bit more money at a lower valuation, but investors want the entrepreneurs to have enough to make it worth their while to keep moving and grooving. So smart investors do at least. So, you know, you're, if you're getting kicked in the stomach one day and it's going to really cost your company a lot, there's a way out of it. That's the way I always think. So I always tell you know, the folks that I counsel before I counsel them that that's how I am. Like I'm a never say no person. Mm-hmm. So to some people, it's like, Hell no, it's over. It's done. I'm like, okay, yeah. I just want to let you know. I'm going to never say no. You know, it's never over. I love that. I mean, I think you have to in some ways. You have to. Otherwise, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to stop if you look too hard at them. Money is the heartbeat of an organization. And at some point, there's always this point where it's like, I have tried everything possible to get the money and I cannot make payroll next month. And if I don't get something in by this day, no one's shipping. And then you're like, okay, like if you've really tapped every network you have, then it's not really you closing it. The environment's about to close you down because you can't continue to pay people. Yep. Yep. What's the biggest challenge you think you've ever overcome or the biggest challenge you're facing right now? I think that if it was a year earlier, I might've picked something else, but the inflation, like we're kind of lucky in that the biggest part of what we do, the actual raw material of growing a vegetable or a fruit in the case of our watermelon jerky, that is something that hasn't seen the same inflationary pressures that our packaging cost. Our freight from our plants to the border, actually the freight from the farmers to our plant, when it's finished goods from the plant to the border, used to be $1,250 a truck. It's about $1,950. And then I say used to less than a year ago, $1,950 to the border right now from Guadalajara. And then consider the freight from our border 3PL in Laredo on the border on the US side, probably looking at 40% increase in freight and handling costs right now, 40 to 45%, packaging up 20 to 25%, mostly from freight ingredients that we buy in the US and ship to the border, seasoning ingredients, the freight is killing that. So on one end, like the inputs of what we have are not as expensive and haven't gone up. It's the transportation to get it to and from that's really affected us. And we're in an industry that asks for 60 and 90 days in advance of price increases, but our cost increases are kind of coming every 30 days, depending on the next order of corrugate or the next time we ship something. So it's hard to get ahead of it because you're trying to be respectful to the price on shelf. There's always a little bit of tension and pushback from buyers and category managers because they're the first line of defense for the consumer at trying to get prices to stay stable. So you're always behind the eight ball. And if you thought you had a reasonable margin to run a profitable, slightly profitable business, if you're not looking at it on a monthly basis, you find out that you're at a loss 
you know, because this happened, that happened, and suddenly you have a 6% margin swing in just 60 days. So that's the trouble right now that I see that I don't think anyone ever is the greatest at handling these, but you kind of have to pass them along at a pace. And we didn't have a price increase for four years before last year. We took our first price increase and we're doing the analysis now because it's the freight kept going up and up. So we may have to do another three or four or 5%. It's pretty wild. I mean, it's happening so fast everywhere and it's shocking, really. Like and the percentages are shocking. It puts you out of business if you yeah. don't follow it quickly. And yeah. I see yeah. some folks that I know real well and they've kind of scrambled on the backside to catch up. Like they blink, they had their quarterly meeting. They're like, oh my God, we're under by set. I mean, by having margin off by seven, eight percent because you didn't raise the prices, if you didn't get on it early enough, that's the difference between, oh, we made 3% net income or we lost 4 or 5%. And then you realize it and you're like, ah, these guys aren't letting me raise my price for another 60, 90 days. That's more losses until the prices are passed on. So it's one of those things that, you know, we've always been afraid of it as kind of runaway inflation and nothing near where, you know, certain South American countries are seeing right now, like really runaway inflation. But this is the highest we've ever seen in the US since I can remember. So how do you know how much the consumers are willing to absorb? You just keep testing the waters or do you know where the ceiling is? Yeah. I mean, what's the trade-off to them if some of these less, like what we make is more expensive than the other types of snacks out there because it's taking fresh vegetables and dehydrating them. I mean, you turn like 16 ounces of kale into like two ounces of kale when you do what we do to it. And the price of it on the shelf is already higher than your everyday snacks like potato chips. So we haven't seen the price increase that we took last October affect on-shelf demand or sales. So it's too early for me to say that there's inelasticity here. All we're doing is holding on and trying to pass on what's coming to us. And I believe we have less cost increases coming at us because of the nature of farming. Like water has not gone up for my farmers. Sun has not gone up. Labor's gone up a little bit in Mexico and, and it should have, and it did. And it's gone up pretty good, but that's still a smaller input to what they do. The seed cost is not up that much. So I still have a big portion of what I'm doing. So we're not taking the price increases that I see other people that are maybe in the barbecue sauce business. Glass is up tremendously. Tomato paste forecast is tremendous increase. So if you're in the salsa and barbecue sauce or pasta sauce business, by the time your new pricing comes around for fall, you know, August, September, October pricing on tomato paste this year, it's going to be extraordinary, maybe 30%, 40% increase in cost. So at some point, the first person takes it and they're like the highest priced item on the shelf and they're nervous and they too early, but then all the other folks have to follow suit or they go out of business. Everyone's got almost the same input prices for freight, for glass, for tomato paste. For us, it's mostly freight and packaging. So you just got to know that if you're getting the price increase on freight, everyone else is going through the same thing. So forever, or you're really getting hit on the margin. If you're too early, you're the highest priced person on the shelf if you've got a competitive product on the shelf. Interesting. Also, there's so many aspects that are so crazy right now. Gosh, Well, I'm so happy that you spent so much time with me. If I don't want to take up too much of your time, but is there anything else that you felt like you really wanted to talk about or you feel like people really need to know and understand before we wrap? Yeah, I think I give a sense of history to the industry and also 
I guess, kudos to the new entrepreneurs that are coming into this business. When my partners and I, and Stubb Stub was one of my partners, passed away five years after we started the company. But when we started that company, like there was no Expo West and East. There was only Fancy Food Show. And you know it was very specialty market. You were dealing with specialty distributors. Things have consolidated distribution-wise and even retailer-wise. There were no investment bankers, private equity, or kind of the financial underpinnings of the industry walking around the trade shows to help you raise money or to invest in you. It was it just didn't exist. And it very much exists today. And the competitiveness with which people have to be prepared to launch a food or beverage item right now is unprecedented. Like 20 some odd years ago when we started the Stubbs Barbecue Sauce Company. It was hard enough. We were going up against the five or six multi-billion dollar companies that had Hunt's Barbecue Sauce and Heinz and Bullseye and KC Masterpiece. These are all multi-billion dollar companies. That was hard enough. But where the real competition is now is that there's a transition in dieting and diet in what you eat, not dieting like I want to lose weight, happening. So that breeds opportunity. If someone's got new ways of thinking about how to produce a food product, they're going to launch and they're going to say, hey, check out my bone broth just to make something up. And you can be sure that if you don't move fast enough at the next trade show, there's two other people that may have been in their kitchen the same time you were, but you move faster and suddenly they're launching after you. And within a year after that, you've got five bone broths. And one of them shelf stable, one's frozen, one's refrigerator, one comes with a little flavoring in it, one has a higher level of collagen. So the competitive nature of how quickly the marketplace for a small segment comes to market and the creativity of these entrepreneurs to develop the packaging and the archetype of the brand. I'm very impressed, happy that you know I've started my companies earlier, Stub earlier and Rhythm, you know. 11 years ago, like it's hard right now to do it because there's so much money, so many creative people with really good ideas. It's unbelievable. Kudos to them. And it just makes it that much harder. You really got to know your stuff to be able to survive and thrive. When you say know your stuff, what do you mean specifically? Is it about, is it all of it? Your business, your financials, your supply chain, like everything? You got to know that if you've got a great idea, and you don't have the money or can move fast enough, like you got to hire a really good salesperson because without a good salesperson, it's revenue. That's the lifeblood. Investors want to see momentum. If you don't know really good design companies that are going to help you create the look and feel of the brand, you're just not going to survive. You've got to have the look and feel down. Your booth at a trade show has to like immediately say, this is who we are and you should look at us. You've got to be able to raise capital. Some people are too shy to ask someone for money. So all of those things together within yourself or as a team of two or three people, you've really got to be able to move much faster than you did in the past because someone else, if they think that there's opportunity and see it and they're well-funded, will come after it. Yeah, that's wild. It is different. I mean, there's literally thousands and thousands of brands being launched all the time. And yeah, they aren't all going to make it, obviously. Yeah. But it's easier to do it in a lot of ways because people are getting used to it and they're learning how. And you're right. The ones who can move fast don't even have to be the first movers. Sometimes the first mover isn't the best thing to be, right? No, yeah. I mean, there's strategy behind being the fast follower, right? Like, yeah. I know how to raise $3 million quickly. I'm going to do it. 
and yeah. I'm going to make mine slightly different. And it happens. I've seen it happen many, many, many times. So when I see someone with a really unique, incredible idea, I'm not trying to like doomsday them, but I say, get ready to move fast because if it really is worthwhile and it's good, people are going to recognize it. Matter of fact, the people that follow the data and buy the data from IRI, Nielsen Spins, like there are folks, private equity, brokers, whoever, they're like, if you pop up as a high velocity item in just 30, 30 stores in a region of Whole Foods, they'll know it the month later. And they're already talking about, well, I want to represent them. I want to invest in them. Or I know a guy that could do this. It's a great idea. I'm going to go see if they want to get funded to do it. You know, So you really have to be prepared to move fast and smart. Wild. Awesome. Well, it is very interesting and also kind of scary, but exciting, right? That's the <laughs> yeah. whole point. I mean, what do I do if, without doing this? I don't know how to do anything else but be in the food business. So, <laughs> Well, it seems to be working out quite well for you. So what a good place to be stuck, doing something you really love. Yeah. Anything else? I think that's it for this one. You can call exactly. me back in a year and we'll see if my predictions help. Oh, I will. I will. Don't worry. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure and enlightening and all the things that I hope for. So thank you. Thank you, Christy. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.